0: Our scripture reading this morning is from the ninth chapter of the Gospel of Luke, beginning in the 46th verse. Hear the word of God. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me, receives him who sent me. For he who is the least among you all is the one who is great. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. This is the word of the Lord. Children, you are dismissed to your classrooms, and if you would, please turn your Bibles, or maybe you're already there, to Luke 9, 46 through 50, and we will be in Luke 9 all morning, really receiving from the context of Luke 9 about our passage um, this morning. But before we begin, please let us pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, speak to us through your word. Heal us, for we are weak and weary and tired and angry and sad and lonely, but you give us comfort. Lord, we lift up the Vanderpools to you. Please be with Amanda. Bless her time with her child. May they both be healed and strengthened day by day. Lord, we pray for Mr. Billy. Lord, be with him. Give him strength. We pray in your name because we know that you are living and you can heal him. Lord, we lift up Miss Janet. Be with her. May she be reminded that you are her rock and salvation. We pray for John that he may love her and care for her. Give him strength when he has none left to give. Lord, we pray for Mr. Jim. We are so thankful that he is here, that he is healthy. Lord, we pray for Priscilla Turner. Heal her, Lord. We trust in You. Lord, may we hear Your Word and may it change our lives. May it change our homes, our schools, our work. May it change Fayette County so that God may receive the glory for the work that He is doing amongst His people. I pray for Christ Presbyterian Church. May your word shape us. May we become more like Christ because he is changing us. And in his name we pray. Amen. As we come into this story this morning in Luke, we are immediately introduced to conflict. We are caught up in a conversation between the disciples and then later with Jesus. Luke tells us an argument arose among them. And this might be one of those conversations that we slowly stroll up to and then quickly realize we've walked into the wrong conversation. We might look at our phones and slowly back away and thank God that he let us out of that conversation because the disciples are arguing amongst themselves. And when you walk in on an argument, it's kind of awkward. The reason that they are arguing is actually given to us in the previous verses. Please look at Luke 9, 44 through 45, what John preached on last week. There it says, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand the same. The disciples did not understand the same, And it was concealed from them. So that they may not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. Fear is part of the human condition. Fear, panic, anxiety, these are all types of ways that our bodies become overwhelmed with and hinder us. It hinders the way we think, the way we act, the way we interact. The way we sleep, it causes us sometimes to think irrationally, and this is where we find the disciples. They are afraid. Ed Welsh, who is a counselor for the Christian Counseling and Education Foundation, CCEF, says, the basic idea of fear, anxiety, and panic is that something seems to be under threat in our lives. Something. Thing or someone that we love, whether it be our family, our wealth, our health, our relationships. When something is under threat, our body tries to figure out how we can protect it. And Dr. Welsh goes on to say that the church typically addresses fear in two different ways. The first way, the church usually says, stop it. And this seems biblical, because when God says, do not fear, he is commanding his people not to fear. Do not be afraid. But usually how the church expresses this is they say, don't be afraid. And they turn and walk away and leave whoever is fearful by themselves, alone, without direction. But the command in Scripture is not, do not be afraid, and if you don't stop being afraid, I'm going to be angry with you. But what, how God conveys over and over again in this command is, Do not be afraid, for I love you and I am with you. Later, in, Luke will say in chapter 12, verse 32, Fear not, little flock. Did you hear that? little flock it reminds us of ephesians 20 or of psalms 23 where god is our shepherd caring for us with compassion the scriptures never leave this command as a blank statement it is never supposed to be directed towards people's fears and anxiety without love we read in our bulletins, in our call to response after the Hymn of Grace, we read Isaiah 41, 8-10. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. Those are all past events. God is saying, I am there for you. But he never leaves us there, because his love always promises into the future. It goes on to say, I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. He never leaves us. When Jess and I are watching television or a movie and our children are in the room, when something scary happens, we look at them and say, look at us. Don't look at the TV. Look at us. Our God who calls us his children is telling us, look at me. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. So the second way the church can address fear is, Anxiety and panic isn't with this blank, apathetic, do not fear. And this, these things are true. But you cannot simply tell someone to stop it and convey the love of the Father. Because what the Bible teaches is that when, not if, when I am afraid, when we are afraid, we must trust in our Lord who does not leave us and who not who does not forsake us. And in that moment, and maybe it's just for a second, maybe it's for a few minutes, in that moment, the Lord by His Spirit removes our fear and gives us the peace of Christ. And then we're able with Job to really say and believe, my Redeemer lives. In verse 46, this is where we find the disciples who seem overwhelmed with fear. And out of this fear reveals their insecurities. And instead of looking to God, instead of coming closer to Jesus, in verse 45 it says they were afraid to ask him about this saying. Instead of asking Jesus what he meant, They fell away in fear, unable to speak, defensive. And out of this fear arose an argument, which caused them to no longer look to Jesus. But they began looking at themselves, their own capabilities, their own worth, because they didn't want to be afraid. And when they did this, they turned from the very thing that Jesus told them would help them not be afraid. Him. Instead of resting and walking with Jesus, the disciples argued amongst themselves and asked, which one of us is the greatest? Somehow the disciples have forgotten. They have been with Jesus since chapter 6. They had seen Jesus heal many people. They sat under Jesus' teaching during the Beatitudes. They heard, love your enemies, do not judge others. They had seen Jesus calm the storm, cast out demons, feed the 5,000. They had been sent out by Jesus, preaching and healing in his name by his power that, that he had given them. They had even heard Peter's confession that Jesus was the Christ. They had every reason to not be afraid. But the disciples are just like us. And our failures are that when we're afraid, we stop believing that Jesus is who he says he is. We stop believing that Jesus really can do what he said he would do. We stop believing that God in Christ actually accomplishes something. And if you're like me, it takes you about two seconds after reading about Jesus, after praying, Jesus, please reign in my heart, before I turn away and I look to my own works and say, look what I can do, rather than look what Jesus has done for me. And we do this in so many ways, don't we? For instance, um, I'll be self-deprecating. In my own life, I like to have everything under control. I'm the fix-it man. The boys have a broken toy. I can fix it. If Jessica has a hard day with the boys, I can fix it. Or in my weakest moments, sometimes I take it upon myself on telling her how to fix it. Or if I was her, how she should fix it. Because deep down inside, what I really want and what I really desire is my life to be a nice gift wrapped in a bow where I can go before God, my Father, and say, look at what I have done. Aren't you proud of me? But then every time, it all falls apart. And then I run to the feet of Jesus, and I say, where have you been? I needed your help. And the response I receive is, fear not, for I am with you. And isn't this a bit ironic of the disciples' decision or the disciples' conversation? Because just in a few verses before this, Jesus had told them for the third time in this chapter that he was going to the cross for their sins. That he was doing something to bring forth the kingdom of God on their behalf. That the disciples were arguing about their greatness right after the transfiguration. Luke reveals that the disciples do the same thing that we do. We listen to Jesus, but then we forget to look to Jesus. And this is why the the disciples are arguing. And this is how Jesus responds in verse 47 to 48. But Jesus, knowing the reasons of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me, receives him who sent me. For he who is the least among you is the one who is great. Jesus removes the disciples' focus on themselves and upon one another and focuses it on this child. And I think the importance of this child, I think there's two reasons this child is important. First, The importance is that the passage shows in whom the disciples were receiving. Children in that day were insignificant. Not until a male was 12 years old would they teach him the law. But here Jesus gives the child dignity and respect. He tells the disciples, unless you receive someone as low as a child, you will never be great. Jesus is flipping the disciples and the culture's understanding, that their culture's understanding of what greatness really was. And it's the same paradigm that we have for ourselves today. To be great, we must accomplish much. Sports, you must win the most. Work, you must make the most. Family, you must do the best. School, you must get the best scholarship. And Jesus is teaching to be great, you must become low. So how do we do this? Well, this is hard. Because to become low means that we have to give up something. Because Jesus isn't telling us that you go from your place of stature, go and be low, and then go back to the place that we once were. Jesus is saying we actually must leave that place become low and christ is our perfect example turn with me to philippians 2 6 or look at your scripture sheets christ gives us the perfect example through what he has done christ who though was in the form of god did not count equal equality with god a thing to be grasped but emptied himself By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death upon a cross. He became one of us. We must give up what we view as great to become low and love those who are the least. And I think this is very practical if we look at children, adults. It's very hard to relate to children, especially not your children, and maybe even your children, or even to our youth. I mean, children just don't really get it. They don't get life. They don't get finances. They don't get whatever we think they're supposed to get, they just don't get it. But what Jesus is teaching us and is teaching the disciples is that relating to a child is the perfect example of how he relates to us. It takes humility to be a friend of a child, to have meaning relationships. It takes adults to get down to a child's level to speak in the way of a child can understand. How do we treat our children? How do we treat the children of this church, the youth of this church? Receiving the lowly means that we care for them. We care about what they care about. We care for what they care for. And not only our children, but for the other, for other children in this church. We take vows at our children's baptism in this church to care for that child. We also take a vow to support The parents. This is a gesture of humility. We are taking the posture of Christ. Jesus is teaching his disciples. The way you relate to children will reveal how you understand the gospel. If you think it's below you to relate to children, you don't understand how God has related to you in Christ. We don't understand the grace of God. For you cannot receive a child. You will not be able to fulfill your calling as a disciple of Jesus. Because he is our perfect example of becoming low. Children, youth, you don't get a free pass here. How do you treat younger people in the church? Do you care for what happens to them outside of the church? Or even, I'll flip this, how do you care for old people? I'll let you define that however you want to. How do you speak to old people? Do you just say hi because you have to? Do you roll your eyes at them because you dismiss whatever they say is unrelevant to yourselves? Or do you seek their good? Putting aside whatever hierarchy you have put as what is important to you, do you seek the good of others? How do we relate to one another? Do we receive people through the grace of God? Or do we receive them through our standard of greatness? But the problem is is there's a flip side to this. Because not only do we view our own greatness as something we do, we can actually view our greatness in the things that we don't do. Recently, I heard of a man who had relapsed back into his addictions, giving up years of sobriety. And as I heard the story, the first thought in my mind was, how could someone ever do something like that? Did you hear what I was saying? How could they do that? I would never do something like that. Who is the greatest? I am. Instead of hearing of this horrific event and running to my knees to my father and say, Father, protect me and my family from my own sin. Protect my ministry, because if my greatness rests on me, I will fail. Instead, out of my own pride, I say, I would never do that. I am better than he is. And any time any of us says, how could they do that? We are, maybe just in our mind, we are moving them down and moving ourselves up. We are saying, I am the greatest. Or maybe even saying, I'm not great. But I'm better than them. Whether this is through Facebook or Instagram or through Snapchat, whatever that is. Even while at church, while at school, while at work, what hierarchy do we put people on so that we can be just right above them? This is what the disciples are doing. The second point to recognize about Jesus' illustration is how the disciples are supposed to receive these children? How are we supposed to receive others? And in verse 48, he says, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. What will actually make the disciples great? The name of Jesus. Because they can become the lowest of low, but unless they do it, In the name of Christ, they will never extend the kingdom of God. They will only be extending their own name, their own greatness. And the disciples should have known this. For they received the power of Jesus. They cast out demons. They healed the sick. Yet the disciples wanted to make their name great. And the disciples' unbelief led them to focus on their power rather than the power that is in the name of Jesus. God values us, but he values us because of Jesus. That's the beauty of the gospel. That's the beauty of this passage, is that our greatness comes not in anything that I do. Your greatness come doesn't, Your greatness doesn't come in anything you do. Your greatness comes because the name of Christ is upon you. He defeated Satan. He defeated death. And he sends the Holy Spirit into our lives and changes us to make us more like him. It is in the name of Jesus why we are great. All of us rely upon him. All of us rely upon God's grace. We are great in the kingdom because Christ has given us his greatness. And in this scene, Jesus is preparing his disciples for his departure. He is teaching his disciples what he must do as the Messiah. He is teaching them what they must do to be his disciples and what they must do after he leaves. He is teaching us. Our greatness is only found in his promises. And again, I just find it ironic. Four verses after the transfiguration, the disciples are arguing about who will be great. Three times in chapter 9, Jesus speaks of the cross. Yet the disciples want to be great. How does our fear keep us from seeing the greatness of Christ? But then the disciples revealed their hearts again. Jesus didn't allow them to make a distinction between themselves, so they were going to look elsewhere. In verse 49, John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him. You know, he should have ended with, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. He should have stopped and said, Praise Jesus, your kingdom work is being done. But he didn't. He kept going. And we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. Whew. Do you hear the subtleness? He does not follow with us. He isn't claiming that this man is doing the work of Jesus or that his teachings are wrong, but he is claiming that because he is not a disciple, he shouldn't be doing the work of the kingdom. There is still some pride lingering in the disciples. The disciples being represented here by John, are saying, well, we might not be great because of Jesus. We might all not be great because of Jesus, but we are his disciples, and we are better than everyone else. Jesus has just taken a little bit of what they thought was their authority. And so they move outside of that and say, well, then we have this authority. And Jesus removes that from them and says, you are great because of me. And the disciples still don't understand. In verse 1 of chapter 9, Jesus gives the disciples power over demons. In verse 6, they use this power that they have received. But it's interesting. The power that they received, they were able to cast out demons. But by verse 40 in chapter 9, when the man brings his demonic his demon-possessed son to Jesus, the disciples can no longer cast them out. And Jesus tells us, because he says, you faithless generation. Their unbelief has removed their power. In verse 49, they see someone else using the power that they had. And they were scared. And again, Jesus redirects them in their fear because they thought they were losing their God-given abilities that Jesus himself had told them they had. And he directs their attention to him and says, Look at me. Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. Jesus tells his disciples, This man is not your enemy. This man is doing work in my name. This man is doing what you should be doing. But you are too caught up in looking at yourself. And this can happen pretty easily in our lives, can't it? Our goal and our mission is to glorify God, to mediate his presence through the preaching of the word, through the taking of the sacraments, for the fellowship of the saints of praying with one another. But as soon as we see another Christian doing something else, the first thought that comes to my head is, well, they shouldn't have done it that way. They should do it the way that we do it. And what happens is that in our own strength of serving the Lord, in our own seeking of greatness, we actually hinder the expansion of the kingdom of God. But there's good news. There's hope for us. Because Jesus is full of mercy and grace for us, just as he was with the disciples. Because, as John will preach on next week, Lord willing, Luke's gospel in the next verse takes a turn, verse 51. And it says that Jesus will set his face and go to Jerusalem. Jesus is finishing his ministry in Galilee and he's headed to the cross. He's spoken of his departure and now he will lead the disciples and show them what becoming low looks like. The cross is upon him, he will accomplish his mission, he will make his name great. He is our Savior. He is our king. He will conquer death. He will fulfill all the promises. And by grace, we become his children. And we are able to go to our father, our heavenly father, with the mess of our life, with all the things that we mess up. And because of Jesus, we are able to hear him say, you are my son in whom I am well pleased because of the name Jesus, The Gospel of Luke focuses us on Jesus and is pointing us and the disciples, look to him. He is our great high priest. And he does not cast you out because you're afraid. He does not cast you out because you're prideful. He does not cast you out even when you get in the way of his work. Because by the blood of Jesus that we receive his name. We are only able to draw near to him because he first drew near to us. Us. He lavishes us and showers us with his grace in the time of our need. In our time when our faith our faith is weak and waning. And at times that we can only look at ourselves to get us out of something. That is when the gospel becomes the most true because we get to look to Jesus for our greatness. God is still working, and He forgives us of our sins if we follow after Jesus. Amen. If you look in